This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. On the show today, I had Ben Eltham from New Matilda come in to talk about federal politics. Then Judith Brett, Emeritus Professor of Politics at La Trobe University, came in to talk about her new book, The Enigmatic Mr Deacon, which details the curious life and charismatic character of Australia's second Prime Minister, Alfred Deakin. Then finally, I was joined by David Vine, who is an Associate Professor in Anthropology at American University in Washington, D.C., and he spoke to me about his book, Base Nation, How U.S. Military Bases Abroad Harm America and the World. He was in Melbourne for the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network's National Conference. So, uh, yeah, you are listening to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with Amy Mullins. And Ben Altham now joins me in the studio to discuss federal politics. And my, my, isn't there a lot to talk about? And a lot of it's very loaded with ideology, as usual, but particularly so this week. Uh, so, Ben, welcome. Good morning, Amy. Good morning. Morning, morning, morning. Morning. Uh, yes, there has been a, a week loaded with ideology and uh, the government seems to be floundering really uh, in its uh, constant efforts to escape its political reality really and, and so that seems to be driving a lot of its policy decisions mm. rather than what you might consider to be what should be driving government policy which would be, I don't know, evidence. Um, the reality. The reality of things. And yeah. So, for example, with uh, energy, the government's been very busy on energy policy over the last week um, but mainly with uh, desperate failing efforts to t- sort of prop up coal. So, Government's been meeting with the energy company AGL um, over the weekend um, and yesterday, I believe, um, trying to get them to keep a very old superannuated coal plant in New South Wales called the Little mm. Coal Plant open after 2022. Well, because they didn't they announce it was actually supposed to close in 2021? Yeah, AGL is saying that they're going to get out of coal. Um, mind you, they're not Which he tweeted of- to Tony Abbott, yeah, hilariously, yeah. the CEO, Andy Vesey. Yeah, yeah. AGL, by the way, still operates quite a lot of coal plants yeah. and makes quite a lot of money out of coal, but they've seen which way the wind is blowing and they're moving strongly to renewables. And so the government is worried. Well, perhaps the government simply just uh, wants to make a bit of a symbolic effort here, but the government wants AGL to keep their coal plant at little open um, after AGL says they're going to close it. So there's discussions now about whether AGL will be paid by the government to do that or whether AGL will sell it to a third company that might want to keep it open. The problem is, of course, like as with so many of these other coal plants, uh, they're pretty old. Uh, Little is 46 years old. It's reasonably clapped out. Mm. Uh, it broke down in 2016 and in 2017. Uh, so it's it's itself an energy security risk uh, because if you get one of these big coal plants that goes offline on a hot day, that's a much bigger risk to the integrity of the grid uh, than one or two wind farms or whatever. So, yeah, um, interesting times in energy policy. Basically, the government really failing to come to grips with the reality, which is that coal has had its day. It's on the way up. Well, 
Isn't it funny that a government that suggests that the market should determine uh, things, including energy, has decided to intervene in the market uh, with not only Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull, but also the Deputy Prime Minister Barnaby Joyce and Energy Minister Josh Frydenberg, meeting with a CEO of an ASX-listed company to ask them to change their business decision. So the CEO is going to go to his board with this government request. I mean, is this not madness, Ben? Well, I don't know if it's madness. It's certainly very entertaining for those of us who followed energy policy for the last decade. I mean, I've got an article in New Matilda at the moment where I point out this is all the government's fault, right? The government's been in office for four years this week. Uh, So it's four years since Tony Abbott took office in 2013. Uh, One of the first things the government did on coming to office was completely upend Australia's energy policy. They abolished the carbon tax. That's how he got elected, isn't it? They launched a direct assault on the renewable energy target, reduced the renewable energy target by 8,000 gigawatt hours in the end, um, stripped out funding for all sorts of renewable energy research, um, and that led to massive disruptions in Australia's energy markets. Um, renewable energy investors went on strike for a couple of years. They decided to sit on their hands and not invest in anything because they just didn't couldn't get a read on the political environment and they saw a government that was implacably opposed to renewable energy. Um, and consequently, we haven't built enough new energy to replace the old energy that's being taken out of the system as these very old coal plants are retired. So we saw Hazelwood go offline, retired um, at the uh, at the beginning of this year. Uh, Hazelwood was built in the 60s. Uh, it was simply at the end of its life. Um, and the government has failed to come up with a plan to replace these old assets that are, that are coming out of their productive use. Um, and, and that's really where we're at at the moment. The government still has failed to come up with a plan. So remember we used to talk about the Finkel Review into energy that was handed mm, down back in June? But a distant memory. Yeah, uh, the government still hasn't formally issued a response to the Finkel Review. So we still don't know what the government plans to do in energy policy. Um, at the In the meanwhile, they're still running around trying to keep pl- coal plants open and blame Labor for all of this mess. And meet with various CEOs to ask them to change uh, their communications with customers so that communi- uh, customers are aware of the best deal that they could possibly get. I mean, wow, that's an amazing reform to energy policy. I mean, uh, well, that's another point, actually, Amy. I mean, the reason why electricity bills are going up is because the national electricity market market is broken, right? It's just Mm. really badly designed market where a few big companies like AGL are able to manipulate it to drive up profits. Uh, So the response to that should be reforming the market. That's what the government could do if it wanted to reduce people's electricity bills. Uh, But they they don't really have the courage to do that and they haven't done that over four years. I mean, there's a very simple thing that they could drive through straight away, which would be the five-minute rule for the wholesale electricity market. Now, it's a complicated thing and I won't get into the details of it, but basically it's a way in which the big energy companies are able to game the market and they're able to sort of stack the odds and the prices in their favour and therefore get windfall profits. Um, And the government knows this and Alan Finkel told them this in his report 
um, but they haven't done anything about it. Mm. And a lot of the recent movement in energy policy this week, in the last week, uh, is in response to the Australian Energy Market Operators Report that warns there will be an electricity shortfall over the coming years. Now, Ben, did you read that report? Because some journalists didn't really look too deeply into it. Yeah, I did read the report and actually it doesn't really warn about blackouts the way that some media have been reporting. Not blackouts, that there would be a shortfall in the supply. Yeah, it says that the supply will be tight. Um, but it also says that AMO's been preparing for this for some months now and that they've sort of cobbled together a gigawatt worth of what they're calling a strategic reserve. So they're, they're going to keep kind of a gigawatt of power on the grid spare, if you like, to ride through any particular disturbances on a hot day. They think there'll be no risk of any supply shortfalls. They do think that there needs to be more investment in more supply over the next few years, and I think we can all agree on that. But there is a well, lot Well, you of, can't rely on a contingency plan forever, can you? You need some long-term thinking. There's a lot of renewable energy coming online quite quickly, both rooftop solar and wind farms and utility-scale solar. So I, I think the, the AMO report has been misread by the media. Um, and, and actually it's been seized upon by the government in particular to warn about blackouts when, in fact, I think it's probably not the case that we'll have blackouts. Well, Ben, isn't it the case that we need to also be focusing on battery storage when it comes to renewables and that's something the government could facilitate, such as what has happened in South Australia? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, the AMO report, by the way, says that um, they, they don't take into consideration what the South Australian government has put in place. So they were preparing the report before the South Australian policy came into operation. So the South Australian government has bought a bunch of diesel generators to tide it over until they get their big mega battery up online um, and that will provide dispatchable power. Um, the feds are investing in upgrading the Snowy Hydro scheme and um, that's a few years away but when that comes online that will also produce more dispatchable power. Um, and what they mean by dispatchable is simply power that's easily able to be sent out to the grid at a moment's notice. Mm. Now, there's a really good paper up on the Australia Institute site by Dan Cass, who I know that you've interviewed on this show, and he points out that if we really want to deal with this stuff quickly, the easiest way to do it is simply what's called demand management. And that's actually getting people to turn off their appliances, which you can do actually remotely through Wizbang technology these days. And that can provide like a power station's worth of extra power just from that. Because, you know, a lot of times people's um, air conditioning can be tweaked just a little bit, but that can actually save a lot of power. Things like that can actually save a lot of power on the grid. And we do very little of it in Australia, but overseas, it's a mature technology. It works really well. Mm. Or you could do the uh, lo-fi analogue version of switching everything off at the power point. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that consumers are getting more savvy about that kind of stuff. They're realising that if you leave every appliance on at the wall overnight or as you go to work every day, it's actually leaching power away even when you're not there. 
Uh, so, you know, there's plenty of things you can do at home, like including pulling plugs out of the wall socket will make a big difference to your energy bill in the long term. Mm, just not your fridge. Leave that one. Yeah, leave your fridge Possibly on. Possibly the alarm clock. But, you know, like many people have, for example, um, a big bank of appliances in their living room, you know, a TV, perhaps a game console, perhaps a Wi-Fi server. Um, and then they go to work for eight, nine, ten hours and leave them on, mm. you know, just leave them on, on standby. Yep. Indeed, got to be more savvy. Now, Ben, there's another issue that's uh, been burning a hole in newspapers and pamphlets around Australia, which is same-sex marriage and the upcoming postal survey. Uh, The surveys are now being mailed out as we speak from today. Um, And we saw some protests or at least not protests, but I guess rallies in support of uh, same-sex marriage and probably protests against the negative kind of debates that we've been seeing about same-sex marriage but it was generally a very positive thing and uh, and record numbers of people coming out in support of it now Ben what is the latest in terms of um, the debate that we've been having around this and when can we see an end to it Oh, well, I guess we won't see an end to it until the ballots are counted, really. Um, it's on in earnest, obviously, with the High Court approving the survey. Uh, and they're being mailed out, as you say, this week. Um, we're seeing some of the propaganda really ramp up, particularly from the Australian Christian lobby um, and some of the no campaigners. Um, I got a, a flyer in the mail the other day with uh, some brightly coloured seatbelts uh, with some very <laughs> crude metaphors, I have to say being pointed out um, about what is a real marriage and what is not a real marriage. Um, So, yeah, we're we're likely to see, I think, the rhetoric continue to descend uh, into the gutter um, uh, because that's, I think, what the no vote want. They want to try and make it as visceral and as emotional as possible in the hope that they can win the debate by muddying the waters. Really. Mm. And make it about issues that it's not like political correctness. Uh, and one Yeah, of- children, you know, they're going to try and instill fear into people about and they're going to attack families of, of same-sex couples. Mm-hmm. Um, we've, so- we've seen that they have no compunction doing that already. No, they don't. Uh, and one of the confected uh, political correctness stories over the weekend was a picture of Malcolm Turnbull with his grandchild holding a beer in one hand and the child in the other. And uh, interestingly, the media creating a, a news storm out of this, not people, there were only a couple of people who posted a critique of what Malcolm Turnbull was doing, but uh, the media creating its own little echo chamber. Uh, this kind of thing that we see of the media jumping on the latest tweet or Facebook post from kind of random, you know, minority Australians seems to be uh, quite a, well, to put it um, really mildly, a, a negative contribution to any public debate that we continue to have in Australia. Yeah, the media's got a lot to answer for. And I think, you know, the, the role the media's played in many of Australia's public debates has been singularly negative. Uh, Excellent quarterly essay out at the moment from Ben Law about the safe schools controversy, so-called controversy, and the way that that was whipped up really almost entirely by the News Corporation newspapers and and the very real effects that had on people's lives. Um, You know, a textbook example in moral panic, really. Um, And, of course, this is often how the media operates. And this is probably why we need more media literacy being taught in our schools and universities so that people understand that 
this stuff is fake. It's not real. It's just something made up by editors to try and sell newspapers to get clicks. Mm. Uh, it's something that we need to reevaluate now that we have things that are completely false instead of just slightly spinning the truth. Look, we've always had a problem with accuracy in the media, but it's getting worse, unfortunately. And, you know, I say that as someone who works in the media, you know, I feel like this is the worst time <laughs> really for accuracy in the media that I can remember. And, you know, you can point to suspects like the News Corp papers, but it's bigger than that. It's much bigger than that. It's a, it's a problem across our society. So what you can do, I suppose, to arm yourself um, against this kind of stuff is to not consume that media in the first place, but also, I think, to seek out sources of independent and reputable news. Um, I would say Triple R is such a source, but, you know, there's there's plenty of independent media as well out there that you can get. There is. There is heaps. Uh, and, Ben, just finally, um, where are we up to with the citizenship queries around many of our elected parliamentarians? Uh, it's all going to the High Court and the High Court has not yet hit, heard those those cases yet, but that's coming up very soon. So, um, yeah, look, constitutional experts that I've seen interviewed and have written about this seem to think that they'll all be thrown out. So um, basically all of those parliamentarians that, that have a shadow over their citizenship will probably end up failing that test and there'll have to be by-elections and all sorts of things. People have to resign. Uh, but we won't know that until the High Court hands down its decision. No, but it's still in the news because Labor continues to seek to suspend standing orders uh, because they believe that Deputy Prime Minister Barnaby Joyce should resign from his portfolio whilst his status is in question. Well, I think he should too. You know, I don't think it's really acceptable that Matt Canavan, who is in the Cabinet, can resign from the Cabinet and that Barnaby Joyce, who is also in the Cabinet, cannot. I mean, it's it's neither consistent nor uh, rational, really. So it's, it's hard to understand what's going on there with the government, except, which is what normally happens with this government, a desperate attempt to cover their bums. Mm. Um, and they've really been in crisis mode now, it seems like, for a year or more. Um, and it would be nice for this government to just come up with some policies. I mean, we, we might disagree with them. For example, we might disagree with plenty of their policies, uh, but it would be nice for them to have some in the first place. Like, energy is a good example. Um, I was talking to um, the homelessness lobby yesterday as part of a story I'm writing. Uh, we have no housing minister in this country, you know, at a time when housing affordability is at a record low. Uh, there's no person in the government really looking into housing affordability. Mm, except the Treasurer. The Treasurer has been making some thought bubbles about it from time to time, but it's certainly no policy has emanated from him. Mm, well, he might he might disagree. I think, didn't he announce some quite minuscule policies in his latest budget to deal with housing, housing affordability? No, no, they were just continuations of the current policies. I mean, there's no new money for housing affordability. Not new money, but tweaks to concessions and incentives. Well... Yeah, okay, tweaked. <laughs> but there's no money, though. I mean, so, I mean, if you're talking about the National Rental Affordability Scheme, the government got rid of that, okay? We're talking about the National Homelessness Partnership. That was money that Labor put in the budget a long time ago. The government's merely renewed it. So, um, if you're looking at the big picture, what's the big picture problem with housing in this country? It's negative gearing, it's capital gains tax exemptions, um, it's the, the constant merry-go-round of property speculation that drives up prices and rents. Government's done nothing about that. 
No, well, I wouldn't expect the coalition government to do something about that. Perhaps one day when Labor comes back in from the cold, they might do something about it. Yeah, and of course, in the meantime, you know, we're seeing rough sleepers reemerge on our streets. We're seeing um, really big problems with even just working class people getting places to rent in this country. Um, you know, we're actually in a housing crisis. And the government doesn't seem to realise. No. Well, we've been in energy crisis and a housing crisis, many other crises, but uh, everything's fine, Ben. Everything's fine, fine, I suppose. Nothing to see yes. here. Well, you know, life goes on. <laughs> doesn't it? And on that very high note, I'll uh, leave it there and say thank you, Ben, for joining us. Thank you, Amy. That was Ben Eltham, National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda, who joined me to talk about federal politics. You are listening to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with Amy Mullins. And uh, as I mentioned before, we now have the pleasure of speaking with Judith Brett, who is Emeritus Professor at La Trobe University in Politics. And she is the author of a new book called The Enigmatic Mr. Deacon, which is out through Text Public. Publishing. And Judith also speaks tonight at the Wheeler Centre uh, discussing this book and uh, and the topic is, well, the title is very revealing as to what Judith will be discussing. It's called Alfred Deacon and the Art of Minority Government, which it certainly is an art. And that will be tonight at 6.15pm uh, and bookings are essential but the tickets are free so check that out at wheelercentre.com and I'll remind you at the end of this interview Um, but uh, let's get straight to it. Hi Judith and thanks so much for joining us. Oh thank you for having me. It's wonderful to have you in Um, and this book reading it is a real delight because you get to know a figure, a public figure that uh, many may not even be familiar with, but even those such as myself who studied them um, at university, you know, I am familiar with Alfred Deakin, but not the man, like the person and who he was and then his whole political life and other life um, that he lived as well. And when I was reading, um, I guess, your intention for the book, that was quite revealing to me because you spoke about how, or you wrote about how, um, you know, there were many others who have touched on Deacon, who've written biographies about him. Um, But this is quite unique uh, in the fact that you say, uh, the book is a life, but not a life of times, life and times. Its starting questions are what events meant to Deacon rather than what he contributed to events. And I think that's really um, a great kind of starting point or I guess perspective of where you're coming from is that you're coming, you're delving in from Deacon's mind and utilising an immense uh, number of primary sources from the man himself. So first of all, um, what made you seek out uh Alfred Deakin as a subject for a biography and why did you take this particular approach? Okay, well, there was a biography written of him by John Lenoz about 60 years ago that I'd read and it's a, it, it was very much what I had in mind when I said Not a Life and Times because he goes on, sometimes there are pages and pages in which Deakin doesn't appear and it was a book that I thought, could I give this to a postgraduate to read to get a sense of who Deakin was or could someone who had a, an interest in public history, in, in history, read it and and grasp him. And I felt there wasn't a, a biography for the contemporary reader. And I decided in approaching it that what I wanted to do was have Deakin have, basically follow 
deacon's life from inside of him so that always in every scene that I was creating, deacon was present um, rather than putting a lot of effort into the background. Now, obviously, you know, this all these things happened over 100 years ago, so you do have to put a lot of historical context in. But my aim was to, to see things through Deacon's eyes and because Deacon wrote quite a lot about the events he was involved in, where possible to use Deacon's words to describe what he was thinking or what he thought he was doing. Indeed, and we're looking at uh, colonial Australia in the 1800s and this is before Federation, a lot of the book or at least the early life of Alfred right. Deacon and that's probably the life that people don't really know about uh, that's far less uh, understood until now, I think, because uh, this is very illuminating in terms of looking at his personal papers and his own um, individual writings, not just his public uh, writings for newspapers, but really, you know, who he was personally. And let's just go to the man himself and who he was and his character, because that's one of the most intriguing aspects throughout the whole book is who is Alfred Deacon? He's a bit of a contradictory character in a way. Um, and you talk about how he was very charismatic. He was a great orator. Um, you know, he was steadfast to his ideals and yet he was great at negotiating uh, politically between others, uh, other individuals and power players. So, I mean, from your perspective, when you were delving into his own papers, what were some of the most interesting things that struck you about who he was as a person? Well, I think two things. One is um, he's very gifted. He He's very intelligent. He's got a phenomenal memory. And when he gets into politics, at the very early age of 22, mind you, you know, he's a bit of a political wunderkind, he finds he's got this great gift for oratory and he's a bit like an actor. He's got a sort of performative self that he can draw on and he can extemporise a political speech for an hour uh, and he can really work the crowd. So in that sense, he's a performer. So he's got a, a great range of political skills. But secondly... The other thing that I found intriguing about him is that he has a sense of destiny. Um, now, it's not a sense of destiny like we sometimes hear about our people who become prime ministers like Bob Hawke, where they their mothers say to them, you know, adoring mothers, you'll be prime minister one day, or they say that to themselves. It's more he, he, he knows he's special and he wants to do something with his life, but he's not actually terribly sure what it is he should be. He thinks maybe he could be an actor, maybe he could be a great poet, Maybe he could be a religious reformer. Um, maybe he doesn't necessarily think about going into politics. Somebody, David Syme, the editor of The Age, gets him in there. But he goes along, it, this is, he's um, in the late 1870s when he's a young man trying to work out where his destiny lies. He goes to seances, he goes to a phrenologist, he, uh, and he, believes that there's some prophecies that are made in these seances. He's quite involved in the spiritualist movement at this stage in his late teens and early 20s. And there's some prophecies made which make him believe that his destiny is to be a great liberal reformer. So he identifies himself with the cause of liberalism by which he understands the sort of progressive energy of politics. Yes. And some of these prophecies do, do actually come true, don't they? Well, according to him, they do. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we only have his records and um, he does say, you know, th these seances that you're 
straining to hear the words of the spirit through the middle-aged woman who's the medium. So the extent to which there's a bit of wish fulfillment there, we don't know, but he certainly believes that these prophecies will come true. Mm. And it was really interesting. uh, You quote some of his self-evaluation of his destiny and his career options um, in a publication that he wrote called The Crisis in Victorian Politics. And you say that he did not want commercial employment because it was directly involved with making money, which seemed to him, quote, as to the ancient Greeks, unworthy of a free man and inconsistent with independence. Uh, And that is a common theme throughout the book is his uh, dedication to independence and to say that uh, he, you know, when people draw him into politics and, um, you know, say you should run or, um, you know, you should be part of this government, he says, well, you know, I need to maintain some level of independence here and I may not always side with you. That's a pretty... um, I guess it's contextual, it's it's in that political climate, but nowadays that's quite a radical thing, isn't it? Yes, well, the political parties were much looser um, affairs than they are now, so we didn't have the sort of strict party discipline. Essentially, it was the Labor Party that introduced that much stricter party discipline. So in that political context, it makes some sense, but even then, he's probably a bit on the more extreme side. I think what he I mean he's young when he's saying these things too so it is that sense of of, I think it's a sense of authenticity we would probably now use that word more than independence he felt that he wanted to be true to himself Um, when he makes those comments about you know he doesn't want to grub his hands with money that's all very well but once he marries uh, and has a family um, he marries a woman who's from a fairly wealthy family and He feels he needs to provide her with a middle-class life, which means a house and a cook and a couple of servants. So although in middle-class terms it's sort of... And the terms of marvellous Melbourne, when there are mansions being built, it's it's modest. He still needs a decent income, so he does have to turn his mind to money. He does, and he then... uh, He's in journalism and he writes... uh, at the age and uh, and that's an interesting part of his life which he continues for a great deal of time and then obviously anonymously as you write uh, he was writing for a a, a paper in the UK in Britain uh, a talking about Australian affairs, politics, uh, and people only realised after his death that he was writing about himself. Yes, this is an extraordinary story, I think, and it's one where I don't fully understand what Deacon thought he was doing. In 1900, he's in London. Um, The uh, Constitution Bill is going through the British Parliament, so he's part of an Australian delegation to make sure, you know, that it goes through as the Australians wanted it. And he gets um, made an offer by the Morning Post, which was a conservative daily, to write a letter from Australia. And it would be anonymous and he'd be called the Australian Correspondent. And he'd get paid £500 a year, which, you know, given that a labourer's salary was income was maybe £200 a year or a bit less, it was a pretty good amount of money. Now, that's fine. He starts that Uh, before the first federal election. He's not in parliament, he's not in government. But he continues it for 13 years through his whole period as prime minister. And it's actually from one of these letters that I took the title of the book because he's negotiating with Joseph Cook about um, the fusion of his Liberal Party with Joseph Cook's Conservative Party. And he writes a letter which says, uh, Mr Deacon pursues his enigmatic 
course of action. Nobody's entirely, I can't quite remember the words, but nobody's entirely clear what he's intending to do. But it seems that some decision will, will be made soon. And now I found this extraordinary. Here he is writing about himself anonymously. He also interviews himself. You know, he says, Mr. I asked Mr. Deacon this and that. He adopts a Sydney persona. He pretends to be a supporter of free trade. And it's not actually until the 19, early, the first biography is published in 1923 by Walter Murdoch that it becomes clear because Walter Murdoch's looked at his papers and there are all the drafts of these letters that he's the Australian correspondent. It is quite phenomenal to think about, you know, an Australian Prime Minister writing anonymously for a foreign... Well, it wasn't foreign at the time. It was the mother country. Um, But, yeah, and in such a detached way almost. And you do say um, and refer to quotes that he himself, um, you know, writings that he's done that he says, I feel and have always felt aloof. Um, So he did... facilitate or have some sense of emotional detachment at times? I I think that's right. I mean, he wrote that comment about feeling aloof when he's well into his 50s and and was what I I read a lot of that material first and I formed a view of him as, as quite aloof. But when I went back to look to write about the young man in his 20s, he's not an aloof young man at all. He's this eager... Uh, charismatic, handsome man who's into everything, you know. But as he got older, he had that sense of of detachment. But he seemed to enjoy uh, being able to look at himself as an actor. I think he often had the idea of himself as an actor on the stage of politics. He used imagery of the theatre of politics a lot. And so there was... And I think you probably needed that to retain your sanity. I mean, he's he's a politician... Before, you know, the 24-7 media cycle. Um, and he's a, he's a man who needs a bit of, quite a lot of time to himself. So he doesn't, in the evening, he's not going to, unless he goes to political engagements, he's in his study, he's reading and he's writing. He also, as he gets older, he becomes an insomniac. And a lot of these letters um, to the Morning Post are written in the early hours of the morning, after the events of the day. He, it, I think it gives him a... a a place to reflect but it also shows he's a very fast writer you know he can churn this stuff out after a hard day's work in parliament Mm. and you say that he was a voracious reader because um in one of the years i think it was 1883 he read 100 books or at least that's what he'd listed (laughs) yes he made these lists of of his reading and in um he kept from about 83 onwards he, he there, there's daily jur- there's week in journals like which have his appointments and at the back they'd be crammed in these long lists of books as if he was cramming the idea of another self this sort of intellectual reflective self and he read he read theology he read philosophy he read the popular novels of the day he read poetry he read shakespeare whether he finished them all but i think he was a very fast reader and i think he he was a man whose head was always full of words and he liked to keep his head full of words. Mm. He certainly doesn't sound like he had a quiet mind. Um, and 
interestingly enough, he also didn't really fit the stereotype of what we might understand as an Aussie male uh, in the sense that he was, um, and you've used the word urbane, well-educated, but also that he didn't swear, he rarely drank. He was a vegetarian for some parts of his life. Um, You know, one of the the first bills he put forward was about uh, protecting against animal cruelty. Uh, So he is very much a, a different person from the average uh, person in Victorian Parliament but also um, and you've emphasised this uh, and his membership of um, the Australian Natives Association mm. he was native born which in that context meant uh, a white Australian that was born in Australia but from parents that emigrated uh, That's and it, that association obviously excluded Indigenous Australians at a time when you know it was highly racist and colonial mm. um, but you know that was also one of his selling points um, that he was a, a native-born success, uh, and that when he went over to to London uh, at these conferences, that he was you know the young, um, vibrant, intelligent, charismatic political leader of the future, and suggested that Australia could really be a success. Yes, because there was a lot of anxiety. Um, in the later 19th century or and, and earlier in the 19th century that, you know, we, Australia had started off as a convict colony. Would um, British people somehow degenerate in the climate? Would, you know, the, the convict stock, if you like, lead to an inferior breed? So uh, he's, a, he's a child of gold rush immigrants um, who always felt they were pretty much a cut above the convicts. Um, so... He, when he goes to London in 1887 to attend the Imperial Conference, he's a representative of Victoria, but he's the youngest of the representatives. He's the only one who's born in Australia. He doesn't have the inherited class deference that all the people born in Britain did. He's not tugging his forelock. Uh, and he actually stands up and has an argument with the British Prime Minister, Lord Salisbury, who is astounded by the cheek of this 30-year-old young man to argue with him. He's, you know, an old British aristocrat. Now, back in Australia, the Australian Natives Association, which was like a friendly society, um, but you had to have been born in Australia to be a member of it. So it's young men like him. They're absolutely thrilled. Uh, And then he refuses a knighthood. He's only 30. And he says, no, no, he only wants honours that have come from Australia, not ones that have come from Britain. So he has this sort of proud Australian independence Um, I start the book by uh, pointing out that he's born two years after Ned Kelly and when Ned Kelly has become representative of of Australia's sort of anti-authoritarian larrikin masculinity, he's the one who survived in popular memory, partly because of the way that sort of larrikin masculinity moves into the union movement and then into the digger tradition of the Great War. But in the late 19th century... People were much... Deacon was much more of a representative figure than Kelly was. Mm. And he was a very resilient person politically because in his early career in Victoria, the colony before Federation, wasn't it... Didn't he have to attempt four times until he was truly elected without question as a member of that parliament? Yes, well, in the first election where he's just put up... It's a by-election and um, it was in... Um, West, the, the electorate of West Burke, which sort of ran from Essendon and Flemington up to Mount Macedon and took in Romsey and those sort of areas. Uh, one of the 
one of the polling booths ran out of ballot papers and because of that there was a question mark over his election and his opponent said look you know this this there's a problem here and um and so when he is first makes his first speech in parliament he's just introduced and he makes his speech uh, it's like his maiden speech and then at the end of it he says and actually I'm going to resign because my my independence I can't bear the idea of of, of there being a sort of sta- a question mark over my election and he resigns and on the tram on the way home the premier of the party that the liberal party that he would have belonged to Graham Berry says well it's all very well for you you can make this grandstand but what about the party you know we've just lost vote but then there's a, a series of elections and eventually um, buoyed up by the fact that the in the seances the spirits had told him you know that he was likely to be back in parliament within six months and lo and behold through a series of political accidents which meant that the government lost and there was another election he is back in parliament and this becomes one of the prophecies that he believes has been fulfilled by events and and convinces him that his destiny is in politics i mean he he doesn't Throughout his life, he always wonders whether politics is really for him and he often contemplates resigning. And sometimes he does resign from the ministry, particularly if there's something he's required to do that he doesn't believe. Like one of his resignations is over an increase in pay for member of par- members of parliament, for wow. example. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Um, and he, you also talk about how he wasn't necessarily in politics for personal ambition, probably in the way that we would see a lot of politicians now seeing it as a career for them and that they are looking after their own seat and interests and electability. As you showed us there, when it push comes to shove, he's got willing to resign over issues. Yes. I mean, what, I think what I mean by that is he didn't seem to be interested in power for its own sake um he can imagine other lives and in the 1890s he'd been a he was a minister in the victorian colonial government in the 1880s um and this is during the time of marvelous melbourne and marvelous melbourne comes pretty well crashing down at at, in the early 1890s because there was a land boom and housing boom that went badly bust and there was a financial crisis. And Deacon, Deacon was never a politician for the really hard times. You know, I think he believed in progress and, and progress seemed to have deserted the colony. So he went to the back bench. And I think if it hadn't been for the prospect of federation, he probably would have left politics at that point and done something else with his life. He was a trained lawyer and he could make money um, at, at the bar um, he may have gone back to journalism, who knows. But Federation was on the horizon and he took this up as a cause. It became, I think, in many ways, as it did for many Victorians, because Victoria was the most um, economically depressed uh, of the colonies. The financially, the financial disasters were worse there. They took Federation became something of a redemption project that um, this, would, this would somehow lift the colony up up to become, you know, part of a nation. 
Indeed, and you say that in Victoria, the young men of the ANA, which is the Australian Natives Association, were the drivers of federation and uh, and that Deakin was devoted to that cause throughout the 1890s. What was he doing during that decade to make federation happen? He obviously wasn't the only person, no. but how did he work in tandem with others? Um, well, he gave lots and lots and lots and lots of speeches. The... Um, the, the Australian Natives Association was really important because, as I said, it was started off as a friendly society, which is, is like a, a cooperative insurance system where, you know, you put in money and that then in hard times you'll be able to, if you've, you've got money for health or to pay for your funeral or whatever. But it became a pressure group for federation um, and so it had an organisation an organisational base. There was ANA branches in all the country towns and in all the suburbs. So Deacon was one of the, you know, the star speakers He who would go to that. He wrote about it. He was a Victorian representative to the various conventions that were um, drafting the constitution. So in a way he had two roles. At these conventions drafting the constitution, Deacon um, pushed for compromise. The The big issue was um, most of the populations in Victoria and New South Wales. So if you were a majoritarian Democrat, you wanted an upper house that was based somewhere on population, but you've got these other little states and they were, or colonies, they were never going to come in unless they got equal representation in the Senate. So Deacon pushed for compromise there. But the second thing he did was he, he gave speeches which inspired the men of the ANA to really work hard and campaign for federation. Mm, he did. And uh, I want to move to um, the moment after federation where a parliament or is being set up and, and the, prime, the first prime minister is being selected and then the cabinet and his involvement in that because uh, initially... Um, line was going to become prime minister but it's isn't it alfred deacon's support for edmund barton or his refusal to serve under line that changes the dynamics of that yes there's a new governor general lord hopeton and he has to select the, the first prime minister um and he's not terribly au fait with what's going on in australian politics now new south wales had been very Reluctant. There was a, a very strong anti-federalist strain in New South Wales politics. And Lyon had been part of that, as had Reid, George Reid. Now, it so happened that William Lyon was the Premier of New South Wales and basically hoped and made the decision that he would select the Premier of the Mother Colony. But it had been Edmund Barton who'd actually led the federation movement in New South Wales and he had expected to be selected. So he and Deacon, there, there was a lot of toing and froing, but Deacon essentially refused to serve in Lyon's cabinet. Now, he, Lyon had been told that he had to put in a cabinet that included the leading Victorians. In a way, Deacon essentially vetoed it and, and hoped and had to withdraw um, the the well, Lyon basically had to say, "Look, I can't form a cabinet," and so Barton became the first prime minister. Mm. I'm speaking with Judith Brett, who is emeritus professor in politics at La Trobe University, and she's the author of a new book called "The Enigmatic Mister Deacon." It's out through Text Publishing. Now, Judith, uh, 
we have Edmund Barton uh, as the, the first Prime Minister. How does Alfred Deakin become Australia's second Prime Minister? Well, um, the High Court gets established and Edmund Barton, who was from Sydney, was pr- the, the Federal Parliament was meeting in Melbourne. So... The, all the other people are having to come to Melbourne. Uh, Barton's getting sick of this. He's missing his family. So he takes the opportunity to, to go to the High Court. And, Bar- and sorry, uh, Deacon is the second in the government and so he becomes Prime Minister that first time. Mm. But So let's talk about some of the issues that Alfred Deakin is known for. And we were talking off air, you say he's kind of a bit of a cipher for certain issues. So he's known as the... as his name is attached to these certain policies and and hot topics, but I want to delve more deeply into a couple of them. Uh, first of all, the White Australia policy, yep. because he's often associated with that and he gave many speeches in Parliament about the White Australia right. policy. What was his involvement with that policy and what was he really doing there? Um, look, this is... I, I've found writing this in the book, you know, was quite hard because it requires a fair bit of historical imagination to for us to get back there. Now, the White Australia policy, I suggest, was a massively overdetermined policy in that all sorts of Australian, all sorts of political groups supported it for different reasons. The Labor movement supported it um, to essentially to protect jobs from what they saw as, as cheap-coloured labour. Um, the uh, the Liberals supported it because they believed that for a democracy to work, people had to have shared values. They needed to be literate. They needed to speak the same language. Um, they, you know, that that was their understanding of citizenship. Um, Deacon, there's a very um, interesting prayer that I found where Deacon wrote. He's writing to God about what he wants to do with his life. And he says, you know, I'd like to serve all of humanity. But he says, but that's not really practicable. So I'll serve my race. So I think that the people in in the late 18th century, sorry, 19th century, early 20th century, they thought of the world as divided into races. They thought of that as being, if you like, their moral community and that's where you you served. Deacon's there was also Deacon was never racist in the sense of physically denigrating um, other people. There's a, when he in eighteen ninety he went to India to investigate irrigation, and he published a book called Irrigated India. And in that, he because he's a curious person, he records these conversations that he has on trains with with Indian men about their um, hopes for their future, and he says, you know, I, he understands why they. One man who's a, a, a nationalist, why he doesn't want to be governed by a foreign power. So there's there's what he sort of privately thinks, sort of. You know, it's not to say that he's a critic of white Australia, but he sees that as being a nation for a people and a people are understood as being a racially homogeneous group. Mm. Yes, it's within a broader context around um, also people seeing uh, that particular race as having a, having a national character 
um, that only that continued really uh, up through to the 30s um, right before World War II and obviously was part of uh, Nazi Germany and that ideology is uh, social Darwinism and, and that connection between the nation and race. Well, I think people always, you know, a nation is, is it, it's a political formation and it was always seen as being based on something that people shared, you know, that, that the culture, that they, whether they shared a history, a religion, an ethnic origin. Um, and the real um, horrors of, of nationalism taken to extremes, which we saw in World War II, were not part of the sort of Western political imagination in that same way. So um, they also, the, the, the people at, at um, you know, the founding fathers and, and the general public at that time were very aware of the sort of racial violence in the United States in the South and they, saw, they, they believed that people of different races couldn't really live together without violence um, and degradation on both sides. I mean, they thought that white people... Uh, found it very it brought that that working with with um, colored people would bring out a, a, a primitive violence in them so they thought why would you if we, we've got a pretty racially homogeneous society why would we go there but that being said I mean Deacon really never thinks hard about the Indigenous Australians they're just not part of what he imagines Australia to be his parents come in the 1850s, he's um, that in the the sort of frontier violence in Victoria um, that happens in the 30s and 40s is sort of over. It never seems to get into his um, consciousness. The um, settlement at Conderic in Hillsville is there, and he's quite sympathetic to the plight of individual Indigenous people, but he never imagines them as part of the nation. Mm. And he does have some involvement with Indigenous policy, particularly in the Victorian yes. Parliament. What were what was that reform or, or change that he made? Because it kind of demonstrated more his pragmatism towards policy and money rather than the race or the racial element. He wasn't as conscious of or concerned about it. Yes, he, he really didn't think... This is what's become known as the Notorious Half-Caste Act, where um, if... People who Aboriginal people who were living on a, a reserve um, were had rights to be supported by the state. Uh, that at, and what they basically said was, we'll only support people who were full blood. They would have said, you know, the, and what that meant was that a lot of the um, mixed race Indigenous people who were living up at Conderic and on other in other Aboriginal missions and reserves were sort of forced off and had, uh, and so those reserves lost their labour but families were broken up um, and it was in if you like a racially, people were racially defined by the legislation and it was the first point at which that happened. Patrick Wolfe who um, you know, is a terrific historian of this period, wrote about this saying that when you look at the speeches, they're actually just saying, well, this will save the government money. They, they, it wasn't, they didn't really think through what impact it would have on Indigenous life. They had not much understanding of the ways in which kinship systems worked and the importance of that for Aboriginal families. Um, it's a sort of massive failure of imagination, but they didn't put 
much effort into it. Mm. It is, and this is, I guess, why you need an, a historical imagination when looking at this period. And what I think this book does well is that is to really recreate and understand the context with which Alfred Deakin was operating the entire time. Certainly doesn't excuse uh, elements like that, but it it makes us understand that perhaps the motivations or what he was possibly thinking at the time when when these reforms were occurring. Uh, Judith, just finally, um, because we're running out of time, I just wanted to um, close out, I guess, the end of Deacon's life because I know he um, started to lose his memory, which was something obviously that was a great uh, strength of his throughout his life. How did he end up? Well, he gets dementia. Um, this retrospective medical diagnosis is very difficult. First, it, I mean, he gets dementia in his 50s. It could be early onset Alzheimer's. It could have been vascular dementia. He could have suffered a series of strokes. Um, but he gradually loses his short-term memory. He, and he's aware of this for probably about five or six years. And he writes very movingly about, about it. It's as if he can hold thoughts better when he's writing than when he's speaking but by the time he dies in 1919 he in from 1916 onwards he really has lost his capacity to talk and but he stay he leaves politics in 1913 and he's only 63 when he dies mm. But uh, achieved a great deal in his 20s and 30s and 40s. So, yeah, a very impressive figure uh, of Australian life. I highly recommend uh, that people pick this book up and read it all the way through to the end. It might take longer than one sitting because it's <laughs> definitely uh, longer than your average book, but it's certainly worthwhile and it's necessary, I think, to get a full picture of who Alfred Deakin really was. It's called The Enigmatic Mr Deakin. It's by Judith Brett. And Judith, you're speaking tonight at the Wheeler Centre about Alfred Deakin and his capacity to um, lead and work within minority governments. So uh, that's a free event that people need to book for and hopefully they can attend that tonight. Yes, and I think with some of the lessons for the present. Absolutely. Definitely implicit. Uh, thank you so much, Judith, for joining us and, uh, and all the best for tonight. Thank you for having me. That was Judith Brett, Emeritus Professor in Politics at La Trobe University, and she's the author of a new book, The Enigmatic Mr. Deacon. It's out through Text Publishing. And you're listening to 3RRRFM. This is the show Uncommon Sense with Amy Mullins. I'm absolutely delighted to have with me in the studio in Melbourne, David Vine, who is Associate Professor of Anthropology at the American University in Washington, D.C. And David is here for the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network's National Conference, which uh, is occurring. And he's very generously provided his time to talk about well, a really interesting topic that's often not discussed. Base Nation is the title of your book and uh, and it's talking about America's bases overseas. So thank you so much, David, for joining me. Thank you. It's really a pleasure. So you've written two books and they're both related. So we'll hopefully draw on both of the topic areas. But uh, obviously this Base Nation, how US military bases abroad harm America and the world. And the other, which is Island of Shame, the secret history of the US military base on Diego Garcia. So David, 
first of all, I'd really like to talk about bases and what they are, um, because as we also know, the definition changes for different countries and it has shifted over time. But it has been almost a colonial tool, hasn't it, to to conquer territories and displace people. And I'm just interested to hear more about it from you in terms of where this kind of military base phenomenon began and, uh, and then we'll yeah, move into the American context. It's really an ancient phenomenon that goes back to empires of thousands of years ago, um, you know, the Egyptians, Roman empires, um, all the European empires uh, and their expansion across the globe, uh, especially after 1492. Um, so we see a succession of world powers using, as you said, using military bases to conquer territory and in the process frequently to displace peoples, um, frequently indigenous peoples. And it's actually rarely acknowledged that the first U.S. military bases abroad were those in North America, which being here in Australia seems particularly pertinent given the role of military bases in conquering territory and in the genocide of native indigenous peoples from this continent to the Americas. Indeed. And let's uh, draw out some of that information around America's history of bases, because as you say, America expanded itself and its territories through bases outside of the original territory of America. Exactly. Uh, In my book, and folks can take a look, there's a series of maps um, available on the website, which is www.basenation.us basenation.us. There's the map I'm probably most proud of is one that shows native people's lands prior to the establishment of the United States. And then overlaid on that are U.S. Army forts, as they were called then, U.S. Army bases um, in North America that allowed and enabled the expansion of the United States across the continent, um, displacing uh, indigenous peoples in the process and and taking the lives of literally millions. Mm. And what time period was this, just to jog our memories a bit? Yeah, apologies. No, that's Um, okay. This uh, so so the United States gains its independence from Britain in 1776, or declares independence in 1776, and basically immediately uh, after the the war, the Revolutionary War, the War of Independence, uh, the U.S. begins expanding westward from its original 13 states, which were pre- previously colonies, and uh, bases become, as one scholar has put it, the pry bar of U.S. expansion Mm. uh, that pries uh, indigenous nations uh, from their land, uh, displacing them further and further west, uh, and again, um, leading to uh, immense destruction and death in, in native people's communities. Exactly, and the legacy of which is still here today. Sadly. Yeah, and uh, and I noticed in your book that uh, Fort Harmer in 1785 was the first base. I think that's right. Yeah, and uh, and interestingly, the U.S. conducted a lot of activities, which although they weren't necessarily bases, they were establishing ports and access in China and Japan in the 19th century, which is quite uh, amazing to think of when we think about China as quite a closed country. 
Indeed. And it's also particularly relevant because there has been some attention in recent years to the uh, so-called Asia pivot that the United States has been engaged in uh, under President Obama initially. Uh, this, I think, is it's, it's actually, as, as you're pointing out, important to, to see the ways in which the United States has been pivoting to Asia for decades and, and really since the 19th century, uh, at least as early as 1842, if not, if not earlier. Uh, you see the United States attempting to rival the European empires for uh, economic control in East Asia. Um, initially, of course, the United States uh, didn't rival uh, Britain or, or France, for that matter. Over time, over the course of the 19th century, U.S. power grows, and you see a growing U.S. presence outside of North America with a growing number of bases uh, that uh, expands quite dramatically in 1898 when uh, the United States defeats the remnants of the Spanish Empire and claims uh, both the Philippines and Guam, uh, Puerto Rico and the Caribbean, and a few other islands. Mm, indeed. And there's, a, I guess, a, a long history also of other foreign countries establishing bases in America um, much previous to this this area that we're talking about. So in your book, you, you mentioned that France established a base in South Carolina in 1562. So as we've just shown, it really does have a, a very long and interesting history. Now moving to the modern times of the 20th century, an example of an American base that is particularly pertinent and still very relevant today is at Guantanamo Bay in Cuba. Now, could you share with us the history of how America managed to acquire this area, this bay in Cuba, and the toing and froing between the Cuban government and the, the various agreements that they've had? Because I know that, as you've just mentioned, Spain and that uh, Spanish conflict had some influence on those events. Yeah, so at the time, in 1898, Spain controlled uh, Cuba, the entirety of Cuba as a colony, and uh, the, the origin of the Spanish-American War is, is complicated and, and somewhat disputed, but basically in Cuba, uh, the United States came to support Cuban rebels seeking independence from Spain. Uh, but what happened after those rebels gained independence and after the United States in the process defeated Spain in not just Cuba, but in Puerto Rico, Guam, the Philippines. What happened was that the U.S. began exerting effectively colonial control in Cuba, um, beginning by seizing Guantanamo Bay and establishing a military base there, which ironically enough is where uh, Christopher Columbus landed on his second voyage to the Americas uh, several hundred years earlier. Um, but essentially what what the U.S. did was it began to uh, exert control over the over the Cuban government and force them into an agreement that uh, essentially it's a lease, like people uh, rent apartments or homes. Uh, it's a lease where uh, Cuba can never throw the U.S. out, at least officially, according to the terms of the lease. The U.S. pays about four thousand dollars a year. Um, earlier, it was a, a fixed sum in gold. Um, and for years, the U.S. has sent a check, which the Cuban government doesn't 
cash because they don't accept the uh, legitimacy of, of this agreement that has effectively been imposed, imposed on the Cuban people for long before the Cuban Revolution, uh, the Cuban uh, Castro-led Cuban Revolution. And I think it, it is, as, as you pointed out, sort of a illustrative case because this is a clear case in which the United States is occupying foreign land against the will of the local government, against the will of the local people. And uh, more, uh, more of the global-based network than many people acknowledge is based on this sort of occupation uh, against the will of locals. Mm. And, I mean, it's undermining sovereignty and the, the whole concept of national sovereignty, isn't it? Indeed, indeed. Uh, and that, I think, is a, a critical question. In many cases, uh, local governments, um, national governments, welcome the United States officially. Some locals would disagree with that. And I think, you know, most of the current global network of what are now around 800 U.S. military bases outside the 50 U.S. states in Washington, D.C., um, most of them were established during World War II and in the early days of the Cold War, meaning most of them were established in Germany, Japan, Italy, and then later in South Korea. Um, initially in, in Germany, Japan, and, and Italy, you see the United States occupying these countries at, at the end of the war. Um, and it raises an important question of when, if at all, did occupation end? Uh, bases have provided the United States an uh, important tool for exerting control and influence and power in other nations in the post-World War II era. They've become, as, as many, many actually compare them to sort of the colonies of the 19th century, they've become uh, much more discrete pieces of territory, but allow the U.S. to wield uh, tremendous amounts of power over over the governments that, that host the bases. Mm, it's a colonial hangover almost, and surprising that we still have aspects of colonization really via the U.S. government through overseas bases. It is and it isn't, uh, because again, I, I do think so much of it uh, relies on on the occupation of, of other other lands. It's surprising because we are supposed to be decades past the the, de- the era of decolonization and, and independence for other nations. But of course, you know, the United States and Australia continue to occupy the lands of other people. Um, so much of the the globe is uh, is run by by countries whose base basis is is rests on on colonization, um, and there are other cases like Guam and Puerto Rico that are still U.S. colonies. They got they get called territories these days. That's the polite language, but they are effectively in a colonial relationship with the United States. Another key example is uh, the U.S. base on the island of Diego Garcia. This is a British colony, the last created British colony, uh, where the United States created what is now a, a massive Air Force and Navy base by displacing the entire local indigenous people. And this didn't happen in the 19th century or the 18th century. This happened about 40, 50 years ago, the late 1960s and early 1970s. The people to this day are struggling to get back home. Um, so there are actually a series of uh, U.S. bases in colonies belonging to European powers in addition to the U.S. bases in U.S. colonies. Exactly. And 
Where are the Chagossians now? So the Chagossians, the, the people of Diego Garcia and the surrounding Chagos archipelago, were displaced about 2,000 kilometers away, 1,200 miles away to the western Indian Ocean Islands of uh, Mauritius and the Seychelles. Some have been able in recent years to migrate to Britain in search of a, a better life, uh, given that they are still barred from returning to their homes. Um, but they have been engaged in a, a long struggle to win the right to return to their homeland. Well, that is staggering to think about the fact that people who have originated in a particular location can be displaced by a foreign power and then you have to go through a foreign court justice system to somehow hopefully return back to their home. I mean, for people who might be a bit confused as to how that could possibly happen, could you share with us what are some of the rationale or the the power plays that make that possible? Yeah, there are uh, numerous ironies, and I think it, the Chagossian story does raise some broader questions about how one seeks justice in this world, uh, especially when you're a small group of people whose lives are are being uh, affected profoundly by great powers. Uh, in the case of the Chagossians, uh, the U.S. came up with this idea to build a military base on on their island, Diego Garcia. And basically, they paid the British government for the right to build that base. And they paid the British government to do the dirty work of carrying out the expulsion, which the British uh, were more than happy to uh, accede to. And in in fact, the, the Chagossians have tried to sue both the U.S. and British governments. But in the case of U.S. law, it's very difficult to sue the U.S. government if you're not, in fact, a U.S. citizen. Uh, so the only arena where the Chagossians have really gained much traction has been in in British court because uh, it it does remain British territory and because the Chagossians actually most of them are British citizens by virtue of having been born in a British colony. Mm. And do they have further avenues that they can pursue because the last challenge that they made was unsuccessful? So it's been a long up and down struggle. The the Chagossians on three occasions defeated the British government in the High Court in London. Uh, unfortunately, on each occasion, the British government appealed. Uh, indeed, the the last uh, appeal went to the newly established British Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court, by a three-to-two decision, ruled against the Chagossians. But it was basically the best possible defeat one could imagine, uh, because the court established that there is no question that Chagossians could go back home. The British government has been challenging the feasibility of, of the Chagossians returning, which is frankly absurd because there have been thousands of U.S. military personnel living on the island for decades now. Um, so the feasibility of living in the islands is really not in question, but the British have spent millions of pounds studying this issue bizarrely. Um, but the court established there's no question it's feasible to go back uh, and the British government must come to some decision about whether the people can come back, can go back or not. Um, and if the British government says no, the court effectively encouraged the Chagossians to sue anew, which they've done now, um, because the British government, after the ruling, uh, concluded that the Chagossians could not return home. Um, they offered a very small uh, compensation 
package of 40 million pounds, not all of which would even go to the Chagossians. Um, so the Chagossians uh, have taken them back to, to court. There's actually two other suits, uh, again, a long and complicated story. But the important thing is that Chagossians are very much not giving up their struggle to return. And let's look at another example which draws upon an earlier interview I conducted with John Pilger because he he came into the studio to talk about his film The Coming War on China of which you are one of the uh, interviewees on that film and I'm, I'm sure a lot of your research really did inform that film and one of um, the examples is the Marshall Islands and the Bikini Atoll Islanders or the Bikinians and um, they were displaced and moved by Americans who who were meant to be protecting the people on Bikini Island uh, under a UN agreement. Uh, And obviously there were nuclear tests and atomic bomb testing that means that it's really very dangerous and impossible really to return to Bikini. But looking at that example... What it, what are they like? Are they a free territory? But the US is still their defence um, military protectors. Like, what kind of agreement have they from that long legacy and, and relationship and you know tumultuous history? Where do they stand today? So the Republic of the Marshall Islands is technically independent, um, but they are in a effectively they're in, have a compact with the United States that uh, means the United States is supposed to provide for their military defense and security. You know, in, in many ways, this is another kind of colonial relationship. The U.S. occupies uh, the Kwajalein Atoll, where they've turned it into a major missile testing range. Uh, they shoot missiles from uh, California most often into thousands of miles away into the lagoon of the Kwajalein Atoll. And uh, across the, the Marshall Islands, we've seen a long-term pattern of displacement. The Bikinians are, are one case uh, displaced for uh, to make way for nuclear testing in, in their homes. Um, but there are at least six or seven uh, groups of islands where the local indigenous people were displaced uh, as part of nuclear testing or the creation of the, the base and testing area in the Kwajalein Atoll. Mm. And they mostly now reside on a, one particular island, which is more dense than Mumbai, apparently. Yeah, Majuro, um, uh, or Ibai. Uh, Majuro is the capital. Ibai is the island that's closest to the U.S. base in Kwajalein, mm. um, and people have called it the ghetto of the Pacific. It's uh, it's a fairly horrific conditions, and uh, just a few kilometers, miles away, um, it looks like a U.S. country club, quite literally. Um, the base is, uh, like many U.S. bases around the world, outside of the United States, it looks like a, a small U.S. town. Some cases they're not so small, um, but the contrast between uh, the conditions of, of living uh, that that uh, the Marshallese experience and then that U.S. citizens experience so uh, so close uh, to one another, um, I think again underlines some of the huge inequalities that one sees uh, this system of bases underlying. Um, and 
again, what is really effectively a colonial relationship between the United States and the Marshall Islands. Mm. And America has really transplanted its own cultures into these bases that they host. And as you say, they vary in you know size and quality. But one of the stats that I found quite surprising was uh, that – Worldwide, the U.S. military runs more than 170 golf courses, and it also has a whole range of cinemas that have the latest Hollywood films. Um, they have a Taco Bell. There are all these creature comforts from home that are quite literally brought in to make the troops that are deployed in these bases feel like they're at home and not in a foreign country. In terms of what that tension might create between a foreign country and their base and their people, so their troops and staff, on an island like Jeju Island in South Korea or Okinawa in Japan, what are some of the issues that those situations have created for the local people? Because I know it's not as simplistic as one issue. I know there's you know, social issues and environmental issues, but I'd really love to hear from you what you think has created the most problem for mm. the locals there. Yeah, what you're pointing to are the what many refer to as the little Americas or America towns that uh, the United States has established around the world since World War II. Uh, they they lit- literally look like American towns with, as you said, schools, hospitals, theaters, yoga studios, uh, all the creature comforts of, of life in the United States. And you know, this has uh, enabled, been an important factor in enabling occupation, um, both to normalize uh, the regular everyday occupation of another people's land and territory by U.S. military forces, um, both both for U.S. military personnel and for locals living around the bases. Uh, the impacts are, as you mentioned, complicated. Um, there are, of course, some locals who are, are thrilled to have U.S. bases on their land. Uh, they are often those who have businesses outside the gates that benefit from the presence of the bases, or they're people who work on the bases um, or uh, service the bases in, in one way or another. But the I would say the the repeated pattern one sees is that crimes and accidents, not surprisingly, uh, create a lot of the the tension um, and anger that leads to the kind of protest one has seen in in Okinawa in particular, um, where there have been horrific rapes and murders um, that have galvanized and and, and spurred uh, opposition that really began in, in the case of Okinawa um, not long after after World War II and the, the, the U.S. occupation period. And there's also a lot of environmental issues that have occurred, and you give some examples in your book uh, for South Korea, not only Jeju Island, but in Seoul itself. There are many bases in South Korea, and uh, in your book at, at the time it was 83. I'm not sure if it's increased since then, but what are some of the environmental aspects of the U.S. presence in South Korea? The U.S. presence in South Korea recently uh, expanded. There's been some consolidation of bases, but uh, a new 11 billion U.S. dollar base uh, recently opened Camp Humphreys that, like Diego Garcia and, and 20 other cases that I've been able to document, involved the displacement of a, a local population, in this case a, a couple of villages. Um, and this, again, not 
the 19th century, this is the last decade um, in which displacement was taking place. Um, but as you as you pointed out, uh, the environmental effects of bases are often quite severe. In short, military bases, U.S. bases, Australian bases, any country's military bases are bad for the environment. This should should be no great shock. Uh, bases, of course, uh, store and, and holds uh, large amounts of hazardous materials, weaponry, uh, and, and burn huge amounts of fuel, oil on a daily basis as part of regular training. Uh, but in the case of South Korea, there have been some egregious cases in which uh, U.S. military personnel have simply treated South Korea like a dumping ground. In one case, uh, dumping uh, toxic chemicals in the the river that runs through uh, the heart of Seoul. And, you know, when, when I'm speaking in the U.S., I, especially in Washington, D.C., where I live, I ask people to consider how we would feel if uh, the South Korean military or any military dumped chemicals in, in our Potomac River, the river that runs through the capital of, of the U.S., Washington, D.C. Um, but this is just one, one example. There have been other cases in particularly prominent in in East Asia, in fact, in in South Korea and Okinawa and other parts of Japan where uh, the U.S. has disposed of uh, toxic chemicals and and other hazardous materials in ways that they never would be able to do in the United States or in some cases in in countries like Germany and and Italy. Uh, And I think it does underline a kind of racism that one sees in East Asia and the relationship between U.S. troops in South Korea and Okinawa and the rest of Japan in particular. And let's take a step back now and um, and look strategically from the American perspective what's happening since this forward strategy occurred and now the pivot to Asia under the Obama administration. Now, you mentioned that there are approximately 800 US bases in around 80 foreign countries, um, which is occupied by hundreds of thousands of US troops. And if you're looking at where US troops are stationed, not necessarily the bases, that's 160 countries. So this is American exceptionalism in a way because you do draw out in uh, in your book that all the non-US countries have 30 foreign bases among them or between them. So this is unprecedented really and it's only increased over time. So from a US government policy and strategic perspective, what are some of the reasons why they continue to grow this highly expensive program? So a complicated and really important question. Uh, Just to trace the bit of the recent history that's important to point out, as you said, there are a few other countries that have foreign bases. Um, Russia has some bases in former Soviet republics, uh, Britain and France and some of its former colonies, some of their former colonies. China has one base in Djibouti. Japan actually has a base in Djibouti. And a few other countries have, have one base in the total now, I think, has maybe crept up to about 40 among all the other uh, nations of the world in terms of their foreign bases. Um, in the case of the United States, after World War II, what you see is 
a global network of bases entrenched around the world. Um, and, and as you pointed out, this is unprecedented in world history. While other nations and empires have had foreign bases, the U.S. collection is by far greater than the British Empire, the French Empire, any empire, people, or nation um, prior history. At the end of the Cold War, a fair number of U.S. bases do close – so at the end of the Cold War, there are about 1,600 U.S. bases around the world in about 40 countries. Uh, about 60% of those bases close uh, within four or five years after the end of the Cold War. Um, but again, a huge network of bases remains in place and deeply entrenched. The basic structure of the, the, the U.S. base nation uh, doesn't change after the Cold War. And so today we see about 800 uh, U.S. bases outside the 50 states and Washington, D.C. in about 80 countries. So while the total number has shrunk, uh, the breadth of this collection of bases has expanded uh, dramatically uh, with bases in countries that previously had no U.S. military presence. Um, why has this happened? Uh, as your important, important question asked, the answer, of course, is that it's complicated. But one critical dimension is that there's a lot of money to be made from these bases. Um, by my very conservative estimate, the United States is spending around $150 billion, billion with a B, $150 billion U.S. dollars per year to maintain bases and troops outside the United States. Uh, that money has to go somewhere. Some of it goes to U.S. military personnel and to all the amenities that we discussed. Um, but a huge amount of it goes to private military contractors that build and maintain and often expand these bases. They clearly have an incentive to ensure that the this system continues, that, uh, that they continue to maintain uh, these bases around the world. Um, so that's certainly part of why the system of bases has, has remained in place. Um, you also have um, the sort of bureaucratic and institutional interests of the U.S. military itself. Uh, people uh, don't really make a career on closing a base. Um, <laughs> so the, the military and, – and, and I think the other really important dimension, two really important dimensions. One is the, the sort of ideology that uh, was established in the first days of the Cold War that the United States must maintain hundreds of bases and hundreds of thousands of troops – uh, far from its borders and as close as possible to the Soviet Union uh, to maintain its safety and security. Um, so it's a deterrence mechanism. That was the the, the theory. Uh, that's the, the ideology. That's the idea. Um, there is some evidence and some uh, reason to argue that that might have been the case in the early days of the Cold War, although I think there's also uh, good evidence that that by encircling the Soviet Union um, with with bases uh, to de deter supposed Soviet expansionism, uh, this only fueled the the tensions of the Cold War, encouraging the Soviet Union to build up its own military forces um, in a sort of escalating spiral. Um, but the ideology of, of of maintaining so many bases overseas 
continued and continues to this day. Um, and I think that's another important dimension to why this, this system has has remained in place, that it has become a, an un, kind of unquestioned conventional wisdom, similar to that uh, here in Australia, where people believe almost as a kind of religious dogma that the United States and the U.S. military have to be and are the cornerstone of, of Australian security and defense. Um, uh, which seems to me a, a, a kind of mythology, really. Mm. Um, I am happy to say that in, in the United States, a growing number of people are starting to question uh, this ideology that the U.S. must maintain so many bases overseas. Uh, the last dimension I would point to is that, indeed, U.S. bases have allowed uh, the U.S. government to exert tremendous influence uh, over other countries, uh, the host countries in particular, um, but also other countries in, in, in the neighborhood, as it were. Um, bases are meant to threaten. They are threatening. Um, and that threat and the kind of leverage that U.S. bases in other countries provides um, has been to the advantage of, of U.S. corporations, U.S. economic interests, and uh, to U.S. political interests. So it the system of bases has been a political economic tool um, that has maintained, helped to maintain U.S. global dominance in the post-World War II era. Mm. And in a contemporary scenario such as the relationship between China and America, some Chinese have often said uh, to me when I've been at conferences, well, China is America's bank and they they are so closely and economically tied that really people can't understand or imagine that perhaps there could be a military escalation of tensions between the two countries because of that and that, for example, Donald Trump's recent threats about uh, China and manufacturing over there and America's investment in China, well, people see that as hollow. Uh, in terms of the build-up of bases around China and the American activities also with Australia in the South China Sea, how much has that created tension between the two countries and what is it that they're really doing around China at the moment? Well, the United States military is a real threat to any country in, in East Asia and any country uh, near one of its foreign military bases. Uh, U.S. military is incredibly powerful for all its um, disastrous wars of late. It remains incredibly powerful. And uh, again, what I encourage U.S. audiences to consider, and I think Australian audiences can relate, is the question of how would we feel if there was a single Chinese base anywhere near the borders of the United States? In fact, the most dangerous moment of the Cold War was when the Soviet Union installed a base in, in, in Cuba, a missile base in Cuba that nearly led to nuclear conflict between the, the two superpowers. Um, I, th I think in that case, and if we ever saw a Chinese base or a North Korean base or a Russian base anywhere near the borders of the United States, U.S. citizens would call for a massive military buildup and some sort of response, uh, military response. So uh, this is why I'm deeply concerned about the recent buildup of, of U.S. military presence and forces in East Asia, um, because it's only encouraging China to, to build up its military power um, in, again, sort of increasing military tensions in the region. While the two countries are deeply 
intertwined economically uh, by ramping up military tensions and ramping up military activity in, I should point out, a part of the globe where there were already upwards of 200 U.S. military bases prior to any Asia pivot that President Obama initiated. Um, by ramping up military tensions, uh, the possibility of even an accidental military clash increases um, and the possibility of, of a what would be a catastrophic, to put it mildly, war between China and the United States does increase. My greatest fear, in fact, is, is that uh, there's something of a self-fulfilling prophecy going on, that uh, there are people in the U.S. military and other U.S. leaders who believe uh, the United States military needs to protect against the rise of China, the rise of China militarily, um, to prevent war. But by taking actions to further encircle China and further threaten it with with the U.S. military presence in the region, um, it's only encouraging China to build up its military power and bringing into existence the very threat that the U.S. strategy is designed to protect against, thus making war more likely rather than less. Mm. And China also starting to exert uh, influence in Pacific Island nations as well around it in, I guess, competition. Indeed. I would say for the most part, so, you know, for for years now, uh, as China has has grown in economic and political power, uh, there's been a growing geopolitical and geoeconomic competition between China and the United States. For the most part, China has pursued this competition uh, with its economic might, um, making strategic investments, um, in some cases uh, building football stadiums, soccer stadiums uh, in places from Africa to South America, as well as uh, making you know massive investments in resource extraction and the like. Uh, in- and providing aid. I'm sure they've also done that a lot of that. Yeah, it, absolutely. The the stadiums are, are part of those aid packages, uh, one of the more dramatic and probably less uh, substantive parts of the aid packages. Um, but uh, we have seen some recent growth, of course, in, in Chinese military activity in the South China Sea, the construction of, of effectively sort of artificial bases on groups of rocks. Mm, which um, is largely an airfield, isn't it? Like an airstrip? Yeah, for the most part. Air bases, uh, as far as as far as I know, but uh, the again, what troubles me is that that the U.S. response to the the rise of China has primarily been a, a military response and a military strategy to use its military power and especially the construction of new bases uh, to keep host nations within the orbit of the United States, which is to say within the control of the United States. Uh, and I think that's much of what's going on with the buildup of, of U.S. military presence in Australia. Mm-hmm. This is a moment where, especially in the post-Cold War era, Australia could be pursuing a independent foreign policy, and uh, as, as could other nations. And the U.S. has used bases to keep Australia and other nations as close as possible and in a subservient position uh, to the United States uh, to maintain mm-hmm. a system of alliances in competition with China. 
You raise a great point there. And one of our former Prime Ministers, Paul Keating, mentioned in one of his talks, and he's very funny, but he says Australia keeps on pulling out the marriage certificate with America to say, hey, look, we've still got our closest ally and friend here. And that's our security blanket almost, really, and to prove that we're slightly more important than we possibly are on the world stage. But there's also, you know, bases in Australia for at the time of the writing of your book. Is that still the same? Absolutely. So it's important to point out that that Australia has has been an important uh, part of the global uh, collection of U.S. bases abroad for decades, really dating to at least the early 1970s and the establishment of Pine Gap in particular, which plays a critical role in in U.S. military command and control uh, operations, as well as U.S. surveillance spying operations worldwide. In recent years, so that the um, the introduction of, of U.S. Marines in Darwin is is the most significant uh, development. In, in addition to uh, the growing use of training areas, Australian training areas by the U.S. military, and a, a deepening of the importance actually of, of Pine Gap, um, where Pine Gap is now uh, part of an, an integral part of U.S. war fighting operations around the globe, not just in in the Asia Pacific region. So uh, again, I, I think this uh, this growing U.S. military presence uh, it has, of course, been welcomed by many Australian leaders. Um, but I think it, it seems to me it revolves around sort of a mythology, a of 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 the need to maintain a U.S. military presence to ensure Australian national security, uh, which itself seems to me to revolve around a sort of mythological threat of either Indonesian or Chinese invasion, um, which it seems to me uh, is based in a series of racist Mm. ideas about invading Asian hordes. Stems from the white Australia policy and our fear of Japan in particular uh, in World War One, and also previous to World War One. That's why we established our own naval operations separate from Britain. So just to wrap up this amazing discussion, which I've been really enjoying, David, in America, you mentioned there has been more discussion about this issue and slight movement around it. And conservative Republicans have raised this as an issue because of the cost of maintaining military bases. And that although you say America does certainly benefit, it is still funneling money away from America through these bases. What are some of the most recent developments at the moment around the bases overseas, the US military bases overseas? And are there any areas of light where you see some change in the debate or at least an increase in the discussion? Well, I would say certain people in the United States benefit from this system of bases, from this base status quo. Again, primarily um, private military contractors that have benefited to the tune of billions of dollars in in contracts to build and maintain the bases and other corporations whose interests have been advanced by the maintenance of this system of bases. I am indeed happy to report that as here in Australia where Keating and uh, before his death, Malcolm Fraser and other prominent names are beginning to question the status quo of, of you know Australia needing to be shoulder to shoulder militarily speaking with the United States and follow it into every war, no matter how uh, catastrophic that war might be, no matter the folly and illegality in some cases involved. Um, in the United States, there's also a growing questioning of the base status quo. 
indeed, you have people on the right, Republicans, uh, who are questioning the amounts of money being poured into the system. Uh, you also have studies by uh, the George W. Bush administration and uh, a right-wing think tank uh, that have shown that the strategic military value of U.S. bases abroad has declined significantly, that the United States, given its ability to deploy forces by air or sea uh, rapidly, really anywhere on the earth, uh, the U.S. can deploy its forces from domestic bases, that is, from bases in the United States, just as quickly or almost as quickly um, as it can from any base abroad. And the extra cost, overseas bases are dramatically more expensive in almost every case uh, compared to a, a base in the United States. The extra cost doesn't justify in, in any respect um, any marginal time advantage gained. So you have people on the right who are also questioning the status quo on on sort of military grounds. Um, and then, of course, people on the left who are concerned about the more the human impacts. And people, um, I, th- I think, are increasingly seeing that the huge inbe- investment involved in, in bases and troops overseas uh, is a kind of theft. In the words of our President Eisenhower, former five-star general, who described uh, investments in the military as, as always involving a, a theft from humans, um, a theft from people who are hungry, from people who are unhoused or unclothed. Um, so I think there, for a range of reasons, you see people questioning the status quo. There's still a long way to go um, because of the politically, economically, ideologically entrenched nature of this system. But there are many reasons to be optimistic. Another and last reason would be the tremendous opposition that bases have uh, generated, uh, often in host communities and nations, also in the United States. Um, And that is, to me, very encouraging. Mm. Thank you very much, David, for sharing your expertise and insight with us today. It's been my pleasure, and I'm sure everyone's pleasure, listening and um, being engaged with your ideas. Thank you very much. It's really been a pleasure to talk to you. You've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a show broadcast on 3RRFM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and noon. Thanks for joining me.